you would, let's pray together. God, we pray now that as we consider this psalm and consider these words that David wrote um, many, many years ago, that you would cause them by the work of your Spirit to pierce our hearts and to open our eyes to see more of who you are and what it looks like to know you and to know your goodness and your grace to us in and through Jesus and to trust you. We pray that you would help us now. Uh, We ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you were with us uh, last week, I mentioned that we're kind of doing a slight pivot in our series in the Psalms this summer. Last week we were in Psalm 3, which showed us why it is absolutely necessary that each of us cultivate a life where God is more and more real, where knowing God can lead us to lives that are characterized by what we've been talking about for a long time now, this way of wonder, this way of life of enjoying God and knowing God and being in awe of His presence. And this morning, what I want to do is look at Psalm 4, and I want us to dig in a little bit more and think, what does this look like practically? How do we cultivate a life like this, this way of wonder? And how do we do that, especially in a time of trouble, in a time where your life might be surrounded by troubles and hardships? How do we do that? If you look at Psalm 4, verse 1, that third line where David says, you freed me from affliction. Another way to try to express this this poetic uh, language, another English translation might be, I was hard pressed and you set me at large. You gave me room. Here's the idea. You are in a soul-crushing experience. You are in distress and affliction, and what your life feels like is like the walls of your life are closing in on you, and you feel like you can't even breathe. And then, knowing God and knowing His presence and that reality seems to just lift you up and transport you to a place that's like the Smoky Mountains or the Grand Canyon or the Rockies. And all of a sudden, you can breathe and there's a sense of relief and there's peace. That's what David's describing in verse 1. And this morning, what I want us to try to do is to think about how do we cultivate a life where a relationship with God can be so real and so powerful that in the midst of affliction, in the midst of weighty burdens, God's presence and the reality of who He is can do that. It can lift you up and it can set you at large and fill your life with peace. Well, what's going on in Psalm 4? What is David up against? Uh, Numerous scholars link Psalms 3 and 4 in a few different ways. So, for example, both Psalms are situated in times of trouble. Both Psalms, we see the presence of enemies that are seeking to do harm. 
uh, through lies, through falsehood, enemies who are seeking to heap shame and condemnation on David. And also, this really interesting detail, in Psalm 3, verse 5, David writes about waking up after a good night's sleep where God has sustained him. And in Psalm 4, 8, you'll notice he writes of how he will lie down and sleep in peace. And this has led some to suggest that these two psalms actually reflect a single day. A single day in the life of David. In that historical situation we talked about last week when David fled from his son Absalom. So if we were to view it that way, Psalm 3 then would be written in the morning after David had awoken and he had been able to get that good night's sleep. The the Lord had protected him. And Psalm 4 now is written after another day of trouble. If you weren't with us last week, or if you just forgot, the historical situation is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 15 and following. And what has happened is one of David's sons has staged a coup. This son, Absalom, for many years has been conspiring against David. He has been outside of Jerusalem telling people as they come in, oh, wouldn't it be so great if you just had a leader who would listen to you and would, would do you good and give you justice? And he's presenting himself as, that's me. Look at, look at how great I am. I'm that leader. David, he's, he's a fool. He's incompetent. He's not doing what he needs to do as king. And in this, he steals the hearts of the people away from David. And then at a specific moment in time, he sends out secret messages to the tribes, goes to a location and proclaims himself king The people are gathering around him, and they are for this regime change, and David has to flee. He has to leave Jerusalem and go into the wilderness. And it would seem like David has lost everything. All of his earthly glory has been taken, and it's come through his own child, And then even add to this, we didn't talk about this much last week, but in an ancient Near Eastern context like like David's, this would be devastating not just because in a sense his career is over or personally and relationally his son wants him dead, but also his honor. This is an honor-shame culture. David's identity, his sense of self, his sense of self-worth is being turned to shame before the entire nation he is being humiliated. This is what we see in verse 2 of this psalm where David speaks out against those rising against him and he says, how long will my honor, or you could also translate that, my glory be turned to shame? How long will people love what is worthless? How long will you love that which is empty and void, that which is not true? How long will you seek after lies? The entire thing with Absalom, this, it's a lie. It's empty. It's built on false promises. And yet, what we saw last week was that you can be in a situation like that, like David is in, and yet God can be more real and more weighty than the enemies surrounding you. God can be more real than all the other stuff that's going on. And so I want us to dig into that idea and think about how do we cultivate 
a life like that? How do we grow into a life where knowing and enjoying God can captivate us like that? So as we look at Psalm 4, here's what I want us to do. I want you to imagine that you are one of David's friends. You're one of the, you know, the group that is loyal to him, and so you are leaving Jerusalem, and you are with him as you're heading into the wilderness. You are with him as all of this stuff is hitting the fan. You are with him through that first night and waking up and everything is, you know, kind of okay, but now you've had another day and the trouble is still there and you are with him. First, what does David counsel you to do? What does he say to his friends? Second, what is David himself doing? Like, you're an observant person. What are, what are you noticing that he's doing? And third, what's the result of all that? So first, what, is, what does he counsel us to do? His friends who are with him. If you look at the psalm, in verse 1, David is speaking to God in prayer. And then he's speaking with reference to those going after lies in verses 2 and 3. And in verses 4 and 5, it appears like he's, he's speaking to his companions, to those who are with him. And this is his counsel to his friends. Verse 4, be angry. It's okay to be angry. Anger says, I am against that. And in a broken world where there is injustice and there is lies and falsehood, it's okay to feel anger. In fact, there are certain times where if we don't feel angry, there's probably something wrong. Jesus, in John chapter 11, he's at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, who has died. And Jesus knows he has the power and that he is actually going to raise him from the dead. And yet, at the tomb, staring death in the face, Jesus is angry. Be angry, David says, but do not sin. Anger is not so simple. How many of us at times feel like, I just need to vent, right? I just need to, I need to tell you all the stuff that you are making me feel right now. Um, as if anger is kind of this like foreign substance in us, like a venom, and we just got to get it out. That's not what anger is like. Anger is a reflection of what's going on inside, in the core of your being, in your heart. And giving ourselves uncontrollably just to anger, just, you know, doing our anger when it comes, just, you know, letting it fly can actually lead to more anger and to just doing it again and again and again and again. David calls us to acknowledge the wrong, to name it, to be against it. There is injustice. There is falsehood. There are lies. Be against them, but be careful. Be careful that the anger doesn't turn you towards sin, that you don't become overly fixated on the wrong or on yourself or on wanting to pay back that person, or just, just nursing the bitterness 
and the resentment. We are rather, verse 4, reflect in your heart while on your bed and be silent. David calls us to reflect, to think, to listen to what the anger might be saying, to be aware of what's going on in the core of who we are. Any counselor will tell you that anger is one of the easiest emotions to feel and to express. And one of the reasons that's true is because anger is safe. Anger is not vulnerable. Anger is big and it's powerful and it's not scary. It's not a scary feeling. Like to sit in silence and ask, what is going on beneath my anger? Is it really that, am I scared? Is that why I'm angry? I'm angry, but I'm angry because I'm scared. Because I'm scared about what this situation means for my life. What it means for that relationship that I feel like I'm losing or that thing that's going on with my kids, or this thing at my office, I'm scared. Or, I'm just really sad. I'm grieved over this thing that has happened to me, or has happened to this person that I love. I'm sad. I remember uh, when I was working for RUF, uh, Reform University Fellowship, campus ministry, and I was at a training for campus ministers, and there was a Christian psychologist who was speaking to our group, and he said something that I don't think I'll ever forget. He said, the majority of people that end up in my office are there because they don't know how to be sad. They're sad, but they don't know how to name that. And they don't know how to sit with sadness. And they don't know how to talk to God about their sadness. And so they're angry. Or they're addicted. Or whatever brought them in. But deep down, they are just really, really sad. There are good reasons to be angry. Things in this world, things in your life... But can you slow down and ask, what else is going on here? Can you be silent and reflect? Can you ask the core of who you are, your heart, the place where the Bible speaks about how we we think with our heart, we, we feel with our heart, we plan with our heart, we hope with our heart, we love with our heart, the control center of who we are, what is going on? What do I want? Anger is quick, anger is easy, but it will not lead you to those deeper places like we'll see happen with David when David speaks to the Lord from his heart. What else does David say to his friends? Verse 5, he says, Offer sacrifices in righteousness. Let me just immediately take this practical. I think we could paraphrase this to make use of the means of God's grace. 
what has God given us that we might know him, that we might enjoy him, that we might love him, that we might grow? Well, he's given us his word. He's, He's given us prayer. He's given us this table. He's given us the local church and life together. He's given us the body. In the midst of trouble, what are you doing with the means of grace? Are you utilizing those things? Are, are you leaning into those things? Are you listening to God? Are, are you speaking to God? Are you, are you continuing to, to amesh yourself in the life of the body? Are you using your gifts and receiving the gifts of others? Do this, David says in verse 5, and trust in the Lord. And I think those ideas are connected because you can see how that is actually an expression of faith. Sometimes literally like showing up here on Sunday morning when you don't want to is an expression of faith. Because there will for sure be times in our lives where things will be going really bad and we're going to be super disoriented. We're not going to know left from right, up from down. And in those places, that's when often the doubts creep in and we start to wonder, like, is any of this even true? And does any of this even matter? Is this even worth it? Is it helping? Is God real? But that is precisely the time not to bail, but to actually lean in to what God has given you to reorient you. Because perhaps through that experience of holding on to God and continuing to just show up to the means of grace and receive it, that God is actually going to deepen your resilience, that he's going to deepen your experience of his grace and knowing him. This is what David says to his friends. But second, let's think now, what, what does David himself do? Well, obviously he's praying, but what I really want you to notice is that he prays and he holds on to specific things about who God is and what God has said that are specific to the trouble that he's facing. Specific challenges that are in his life and he grabs onto specific promises or aspects of God's character. Look at verse 1. David prays, God who vindicates me. Or that could also be translated, God of my righteousness. If you remember from last week, there are voices of condemnation in David's life and they are saying in the midst of his trouble and his experiences, they are saying, there is no salvation for you in God. It is hopeless. Give it up. God has delivered you over to your own evil. This is your fault. And though those voices are wicked and they don't love God, as we said last week, there's an element of truth in that. Because David knows from 2 Samuel 12 that God has told him that this situation with Absalom is a direct result of his sin with Bathsheba, adultery, and then killing her husband to cover it all up. And David had cried out to God for grace and mercy, saying, God, forgive me, cleanse me. 
And God had answered his prayer and has restored him. But now it's like David is experiencing those consequences in his face. And so what does he do? He cries out to the God who is his righteousness. The God who has the final word on David's life. The God in whose hands he is depending This is the God who says, I declare you to be right. I set you right with myself. Not because of what you've done, but because of my grace. Do you see what he's doing there? What what else does he do? In verse 3, in response to those who are turning his glory into shame, David says, Know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. The verb there, set apart, it only shows up four other times in the Old Testament. It is abundantly clear what David is referring to. All of these other uses all occur in the book of Exodus, and they all refer to the same reality. And the reality is is that the Lord makes a distinction between those who belong to him and those who don't. He makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt. So when the plague of the flies comes, God sets apart the people of Israel and they're spared. And when the plague hits the livestock, the livestock belonging to the Israelites, it's set apart and they're kept safe. In Exodus chapter 11 verse 7, God says, not even a dog will be allowed to growl at you so that you may know that I have set apart Israel for myself. And David is in this moment where he is, in a sense, confessing his faith, kind of like we just did a few minutes ago when we confessed our faith using the words of the Heidelberg Catechism. And I have to imagine there are times where you've come into this church and the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, when we confess it as we do often, don't feel true. It does not feel like God is watching over me. It does not feel like he knows every hair of my head and he actually cares about anything in my life. It doesn't feel that way. But what David is doing in this moment is he's confessing his faith. He's saying, you have set apart the godly for yourself. I belong to you. And I know that you hear me. Do you see what he's doing? In verse 6, when many of David's friends are despairing and losing hope and they lament and they, will, and they say, who will show us anything good? David says, I know who will show us good. And he, where does he go? He goes to the book of Numbers. I, I don't know if you know the reference that he's making here, but that, that seems like that's probably not where most of us would go. But he goes to the book of Numbers, Numbers 6, The blessing that we often say at the end of our services, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. He turns to that exact point in Israel's history 
when Israel was not doing well, they were in the wilderness, they did not believe God often, they did not trust God, they rebelled, they said, why have you brought us here? Did you bring us into the wilderness to kill us? And God is actually saying, I'm committed to blessing you. So Aaron, you're going to say this over the lives of the Israelites because this is who I am. I'm going to bless my people. And in this moment, who will show us any good? David says, I know who will show us good. Do you see what he's doing? There is not a problem that David is facing that he cannot grab some aspect of God's character or God's promises, or something that God has done, and he's grabbing onto these in these specific moments of trial and temptation and, and trouble, and he's holding on to them. And what is the result? Verses 7 and 8. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. I will both lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, Lord, make me live in safety. Joy and peace. Joy, David says, greater than material and circumstantial prosperity. Right? This is an agrarian society, so if your grain abounds, that's like you are financially set. You have all that you need. And if your new wine is abounding, that, that's an image of joy and celebration. These are the circumstances where a person's life, it's like, I don't lack for anything. I don't think about my bills. They just get paid. I have enough money to do whatever I want. I'm out in the summer. It's beautiful. I'm drinking wine on my deck. It's a beautiful day. I'm going to go to vacation wherever next week. This is just abundant prosperity. And David says, God, you have given more joy in my heart than a perfect life. And so I'm going to lie down and I'm going to sleep and I'm going to experience your peace and your wholeness for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. David knew the story up to his point in time. He knew his own experience of God's grace. He knew the story of God's faithfulness in the scriptures. He knew that God was the God of the covenant. The God who binds himself to his people. He knew that God was the God of the exodus. The God who set his people free and liberated them. He knew that God was the God of the faithful faithful to his promises in the wilderness. That when the people were unfaithful, God was still faithful and it was enough. It was enough for David. But we have more, don't we? We have way more. We have Jesus Christ, God in person, in our world. Hebrews 12 calls us to look to Jesus to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the pioneer of our faith. The one who has walked this way before us, who has lived in our shoes, has experienced troubles in this world. The one who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. 
Listen to this from Hebrews 12.3. It commands us to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why? Why? Why do we need that? Why do we need to do that? So that you may not grow faint-hearted or weary. So that you may not lose heart. If we will look to Jesus, we will see everything in this psalm that David was looking to, but even, in a sense, at another level, because now we're talking about God who has come in person in our world and actually lived this psalm. Like, Jesus experienced David's experience of being glorious and, and deserving of all honor and yet being drugged through the mud and shamed. The cross was a death designed not only to terrorize you and give you unspeakable pain, but to shame you to your last breath. Jesus has walked this path. Jesus lived trusting God his entire life. There's these moments throughout the gospel, you see it all the time, where Jesus has to, he has to go and, and spend time in prayer with his Father because his heart was always in tune with God's heart. And though he was angry at the brokenness of the world, he never sinned. And Jesus who Hebrews 5 says, offered up prayers with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and God heard him. And although he was a son, the son of God, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Consider this, the book of Hebrews is telling us, the the Bible is telling us, consider them, think about them, draw them into the core of who you are. Because if you do, it will keep you from weariness. It will keep you from despair. It will keep you from losing heart. It will reorient you in the midst of troubles so that you can continue to entrust yourself to God in the same ways we're seeing in this psalm, that you can grab on to certain things about who God is and what he has done in and through Jesus and throughout history and shown his character to you, and you can grab hold of that. And you can also have the faith to continue to engage in the means of grace that God gives us, that we might be refreshed, that we might experience supernatural peace and joy. I want to invite us, as we do each week, to take a time now to to turn to the Lord, to bring to him those parts of our life where perhaps we are really struggling this morning, or to bring those parts where we know that we have, we have sinned, we have turned from what he has called us to, and to ask for his help. I'll give us a few moments to do that, and, and then in a moment I'll lead us in prayer. Let's pray.